Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samha Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samha Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samha Sambuddhasa Bhutang Namang Sanghang Namasami First month of retreat slipped by into the past, and uh, recently we had a uh, a bit of a personnel adjustment. Uh, so we've had people coming and going a little bit on the crew. We had a significant departure recently, and that. That event was unanticipated, but we're recovering. We're, we're going to be okay. Um, but it did give me uh, give give me reason to contemplate a little more on on the nature of the monastic environment, um, the way we're trying to conduct our lives as practitioners, and this aspect of the Buddhist teaching called Vinaya, which doesn't get that much press in the Western world of Buddhist practitioners. It's not like it, it gets zero press, but it, it, it's maybe uh, underrated. Usually the word Vinaya is referring to the rules that the monks are observing. Uh, it's often translated as discipline, which can sound a little harsh. But it's, a, it's an appropriate word because um, a lot of what the Vinaya is about has to do with restraint, with holding oneself back from doing what one might feel inclined to do. Uh, and the rules articulate specifically what it is that monks should not do. Uh, so the Vinaya is uh, restrictive rather than prescriptive. It's not telling us what we should do, it's telling us what we should stop doing. It's an interesting formulation, but it's, it's effective because it helps keep our attention on what's, uh, what the Buddhist teaching is all about, actually. So the eight precepts, which the, uh, the lay crew and participants just took, the, the precepts against taking the life of living creatures, against taking what's not given, against any, any intentional sexual activity, uh, uh, lying, and uh, intoxicants, eating at inappropriate times, adornment, beautification, and entertainment, and lying in high and luxurious sleeping places. It's, it's, uh, it's an interesting, again, it shows the same, the same quality of 
uh, restrictive, restrictive, to refrain from taking the life of any living creature, for example. Uh, obviously, it's it's not telling us what to do; it's telling us what to not do. And this is a this is a such a central principle of what the Buddha is teaching um, that we can almost lose sight of it. It's it's informing uh, the suttas. It's informing. Uh, all the formulations of how to how to practice. Uh, ultimately, what the Buddha is pointing to is what he calls release. Uh, one one unwittingly has a grip on something. Uh, the mind has a grip, has a has a stance, a grasping. It's holding on to being someone, having a point of view, um, interpreting things in a certain way. Uh, and it, all of these things that the mind does are a, a kind of a positive. There's, the mind is doing something in order to make our experiences appear to us the way they do. And in order to see Nibbana, we literally have to let go we have to we have to stop grasping, and so this principle of uh, restraining or refraining from doing something is uh, woven throughout the teachings, and it, of course it's the the very heart of the vinya. So coming back to the eight precepts, those eight precepts are uh, essentially monastic precepts. Uh, they go a little bit above and beyond the lay precepts. The lay precepts are the five. Uh, they don't include the restrictions against entertainment, beautification, and adornment. They don't. They don't include um, uh, the restraint against high and luxurious sleeping places. Those sorts of things are part of what's called the five cords of sensual pleasure, and those are appropriate and totally okay for lay people, but not for monastics, and not at monasteries. And that's why we take the eight precepts uh, when, we're, when we're living here. Uh, the monastic vinaya, the 227 rules for the monks, is simply those eight precepts uh, with a lot of elaborations. Uh, it's a whole body of law. and uh, But it, uh, all of it can be traced down to the same principles that are, that are illustrated in the eight precepts themselves. So the eight precepts are... Um, uh, a pretty good approximation, like 90% of the monastic vinaya uh, is contained in the, in the eight precepts. And interestingly, the, the biggest precept, or the most important one, the one that, that creates the most uh, uh, difficulty in a monastic's life, uh, for most people, most of us, is number three. Right? We don't usually have that much trouble, like not killing things. It's not. Uh, it's not like we have a really deep-seated habit of going around taking the life of living creatures. Uh, for the most part, uh, so we don't have a, a hard time when we become monastics or when we're living at the monastery uh, to uphold that precept. 
So taking it, taking that precept is kind of a formality. And maybe taking what not what's not given that might be a little uh, a little more close to the surface. But even that's not so difficult to do because there's really not that many things sort of valuable lying around. Uh, we learn how to restrain ourselves from taking even uh, toothpaste or uh, um, food that hasn't been given. It has to be given before we can use it. So we learn that over time. And these are training precepts, so we, don't, we, we take them on with the intention of using them to, to train ourselves. Uh, so uh, perfection is not required, uh, but perfection is what we're aiming at. But the third one, the uh, brahmacharya, the uh, precept against any kind of sexual activity, is uh, that's a that's a tough one. That causes people all kinds of difficulty. Um, but it's the one that requires uh, a, a fair bit of practice and understanding to really wrap your head around it. Uh, Sexual activity isn't just um, the sexual act. It's more or less the mind's inclination in that direction. The Buddha divides the world into a, a kind of two spheres, uh, the lay life and the, and the household life on the one hand, and the renunciate life on the other hand. The renunciate life is one where we're literally turning our backs, literally, figuratively, we're turning our backs on household life. Household life necessarily is involved with having a place to live, having a house, having responsibilities, having relationships, um, and what keeps household life going is uh, generation of new participants. So household life involves reproduction. It involves the creation and maintenance of bodies. And the monastic world lives as a beggar on the edge of household life. Uh, we receive everything that we have as gifts from householders. So the monastic sphere can't exist without the household sphere supporting it. Uh, so we're a, a, a beneficiary, you could say. All, every one of us here was born in the household life. None of us were born in the monastic life, at least not physically. Figuratively speaking, we all become, when we become monastics, we die from the household life and we get reborn as, as from monastics, figuratively speaking. But in this life, this monastic life, there isn't reproduction. And so anything that inclines in that direction, um, flirting, striking up a saucy conversation, telling leading jokes, uh, looking at uh, sort of inappropriate media, uh, uh, kind of uh, conversations that incline in that direction. Those are all things that um, push up against this particular precept, the, uh, any intentional sexual activity. Although none of them really cross the line, like flirting doesn't necessarily count as intentional sexual activity. 
uh, not, not in the wider world. But in the monastic world, uh, it kind of does. Uh, pursuing a, a, a relationship, a man-woman relationship, or a partnership relationship, a romantic relationship, within a monastery is, um, it just doesn't fit, it doesn't go, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't make sense. It's kind of incoherent. One comes to the monastery for the sake of practicing renunciation and pursuing relationship or pursuing interest in other persons uh, in that setting is diametrically opposed. And this, this uh, contrast between the kind of natural human impulse to engage and uh, form connections with persons of interest, often of the opposite gender, um, uh, this is uh, this is where the the training of the Buddha really goes against the grain of the world, uh, and so as monastics we we um, we become acutely aware of this. It's difficult. Uh, the mind has deep habits that might go back more than just one lifetime. Uh, deep habits of seeking and finding gratification in the world of sensual contact. And sensual contact has many grades and many varieties, but the one that has the most potency is sexual contact. And that's why that, that particular precept is there. It's, it's the very heart of the matter. In order to succeed ultimately in Buddhist practice, one has to turn away from all the lures and attractions of the world. And every time we sit down to meditate and try to calm the mind, we're, we're practicing that act. Uh, our, and our, we can see that our inner mental habits, our emotional habits, uh, especially when we first start practicing meditation, we can see that those habits are, are trained by the, the, uh, the non-renunciate world. Those habits are, are trained by the engagement world, and they're very powerful. So the mind doesn't want to hold still. It doesn't want to stick with the object. It gets bored, and it goes flying away. And where does it go flying to? It doesn't go flying to more renunciation. It goes, goes flying to its opposite. It goes flying to various forms of engagement, various fantasies, various memories, various thoughts. And those thoughts might be gratifying, or they might be uh, terrifying, but it's but it, they're engaging. The the mind wants to be engaged. There's a word that 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 uh, points right back to this this idea of uh, having a relationship, getting engaged, putting a ring on the finger, you know, making a promise for the future offering something that's going to be really, really great to consume later on. So this kind of engagement is uh, um, the great mainstream of the world. And the Buddha doesn't condemn it. He doesn't say that it's evil. And that's why these training precepts are, are reckoned as trainings rather than uh, sometimes the idea of sila gets translated as morality or ethics. 
um, which is a pretty good translation, but uh, renunciate training or training in, in, in restraint is uh, closer to the mark. It just so happens that every one of these trainings looks like the practice of extreme virtue. You know, uh, not taking the life of living creatures is virtuous. Right? Intentionally doing that, intentionally restraining yourself from you know, killing whatever's bothering you. Um, uh, it's, it gives a protection to all living creatures when you intentionally aim at not allowing yourself to kill. The same goes for not taking things that don't belong to you, anything that's not given. It's offering protection for the property of the world. And making the renunciation around sexual activity in the context of the monastery gives protection to everybody here who's trying to do this rather challenging work. Right? It's not an easy thing to go against these habits of the mind, especially this habit of sensual contact, or sensual craving. Uh, and in order to support each other, and in order to make the monastery even possible to function, uh, this is uh, the, like the, the axle, or the key that makes the, the whole thing possible, makes it work. We protect each other, we, we protect the people who come to practice here. We, that's part of what makes the monastery a refuge, is that it's not a place where there's any sexual activity. It's simply not part of the scene. It's part of what makes a monastery feel um, peaceful, because there's the, that agenda has to, has to stop at the gate. And uh, people who practice it seriously, they develop an inner um, well. It's an inner quality of it's a kind of an inner beautiful quality of deeply respecting the boundaries of other people, and uh, that comes out in various kinds of. Uh, um, subtle ways. So when we're practicing respect, um, at first it seems awkward and weird, but later on we can see that, that the gestures of respect are various kinds of kindness, various kinds of giving, various kinds of, of uh, upholding the integrity and the value of our fellow practitioners as they undertake this very difficult task of freeing the mind and the heart from entanglement with those things that cause suffering, entanglement with the unwholesome, entanglement with that which leads to rebirth and redeath. It's a very high aim. It's very noble. And uh, anybody who seriously undertakes it and tries to practice it, um, you could say they, 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 they're worthy of our respect. And so when we, when we deeply connect with this, then we, it, the, the, the rule against any kind of sexual activity is, it's not weird at all. It's the very ground of our practice, the very ground of our, of our existence here as monastics, as, as people who are practicing in a monastery, as renunciates 
as followers of the Buddha. What the Buddha is pointing towards, pointing us to, is something he calls Nibbana. And he says Nibbana is, uh, he gives it a lot of different synonyms. Uh, he calls it the marvelous, the wonderful, the, um, the, the greatest, the highest happiness, the uh, unshakable peace, um, the unaging, the unailing, the deathless. So he's pointing to, uh, let's call it an experience or an understanding that takes us beyond death. And anything that takes us beyond death takes us beyond birth. So it's, it's also called the unborn. So going beyond death, going beyond birth, beyond aging, this is why it's the highest happiness. It's not a happiness that's based on gratifications of the world. It's not a happiness based on uh, the pursuits that are common to the, that, that are held in common with sexual pursuits, sensual pursuits. It's a happiness that requires the setting aside of all those things. Uh, it can't be seen as long as the mind is, is beclouded by interest and orientation towards central pleasures, central contact, uh, all the little possibilities of gratification that are on offer in the, the non-monastic realm. The monastic realm has relatively little gratification on offer. Uh, we get a place to sleep, uh, clothes to wear, food to eat, medicine when we're sick. And it's definitely good enough. We have a very, very comfortable uh, setting here. We're very well taken care of. This is an extremely uh, nicely appointed monastery. Um, and as monastics, it's all, I mean, it's more than we can ask, we can ask for. Uh, we can ask for the four requisites and that's about it. So we're getting over and above that. And yet, even though this is plenty to survive with, and it's way more than most people have had through most of human history, the mind can still make itself discontent. And it's this discontent which, is, uh, which drives the mind from one thing to another, looking for an escape. This is unhappiness. This is suffering. This is, this is dukkha. So even though from a, a rational perspective we can see that the life that we have here these circumstances uh, should almost like automatically generate peace and contentment and uh, well-being. We still experience, even in these circumstances, all kinds of um, impulses and motivations and memories and uh, drives. So we need a structure to help us maintain our orientation Towards the Buddhist teaching, and again, that's what the that's what the Vinaya is there for. It creates a framework for how we restrain ourselves, how we conduct ourselves, and operating within this framework, uh, practitioners have generated a 2,500-year track record of success 
which we are the, 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 the heirs of. We've inherited this form. And so, uh, as we practice, as we get more familiar with how this works, um, one can feel a sense of deep uh, devotion and respect coming up even, not, even more than just for the, the persons who are doing it, for the form itself. It's a, a incredibly powerful and uh, almost unprecedented, uh, uh, not discoverable elsewhere in the world, a setting in which human beings, just like us, intentionally set aside all the pulls of the household life, including the central pull of uh, partnership, sexual contact, sensual indulgence, reproduction, children, families, uh, all the things that promise happiness and promise a future and promise something uh, delightful and graspable out in the world. We intentionally come here recognizing the limitations of that out of confidence in the Buddha's teaching. And we start practicing in this form and the form works. People transform themselves. They're able to abandon suffering in all kinds of ways, large and small. And that's why it keeps going, because it works. So the rules aren't there to oppress us. The rules are there so that we can free ourselves. We take on the rules not out of obedience or out of an intention to please others, to conform socially. Those aren't really our proper motivations, even though those might those might get involved, but the real motivation is uh, because we want what the Buddha what the Buddha is promising. The Buddha promises that one who follows his path arrives at a destination that is the highest happiness, a place beyond birth and death, something which cannot be taken away, something which does not depend on external circumstances. So the rules then become not rules, but trainings, ways of training ourselves, ways of redirecting our mind over and over again, away from what doesn't work, all the things that we've done a hundred thousand times, we know they don't work, and towards something which, although is not so easy to do, actually does produce results. So this vinya is not merely worth upholding, it's worth studying and contemplating and investigating, seeing the connections between the rules of restraint and the practice of the rules of restraint, what it takes mentally to, re to practice these restraints, and what the Buddha is pointing towards in terms of the Dhamma, the freedom that he's promising. The Dhamma doesn't make sense without the Vinaya. The Vinaya doesn't really make sense without the Dhamma. There are two sides of the same coin. One can't free the heart unless one restrains first. Restraint 
purity of ethical conduct is the very foundation upon which liberation stands. In the very end of the uh, Eight Precepts, there's a little passage where uh, the senior monk points out that this, these eight precepts are um, the basis of happiness. Uh, that they are the eight precepts. Holding the eight precepts is, uh, builds something which is truly worth having. True wealth. Not the false wealth of the world, which is so easy to lose. So easily taken away by others. Once one has purified one's conduct, purified one's vinya, then there's a sense of inner purity which is not dependent on what the world does, uh, what the circumstances are on the outside. And this is well worth having all by itself. And that, that inner purity uh, gives the mind uh, a kind of comfort, a kind of confidence, a kind of power that it doesn't have when it's engaged in pursuits of sensual pleasures. Uh, it can't have, it's scattered. So the basis of power is virtue, is ethical conduct, is upholding the vinya. And so this is uh, something that's well worth our time to investigate carefully. Not just studying the text and knowing all the nuances of the rules, but why the rules are there and how they're related to what the Buddha is teaching. So I wanted to offer those thoughts for your reflection.